0: What are you waiting for? Welcome to This Is Not A Dress Rehearsal Podcast. Stop holding your breath waiting for perfect conditions before you move through the world. Tune in for real stories of real people who understand the freedom to live well. Your host, Bonnie Sewell, is a veteran wealth manager with 12 grandchildren, helping clients over the last 30 years enjoy their wealth. You can listen to all podcasts at www.americancapitalplanning.com podcast, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: As CEO of Oatland's historic house and garden, Caleb Schutz is using unique strategies to revitalize the property and to give a 360 degree view of its history. Caleb has employed the same strategic thinking in his prior positions as president of the National Geographic Society's The Jason Project, corporate vice president and president of the MCI Foundation and program director at IBM. Caleb holds a Master of Business Administration degree from the University of California at Los Angeles and a Bachelor of Science degree in Psychology from the University of California at Santa Cruz. His research and work on various aspects of educational innovation and corporate social responsibility have been widely published. Caleb's professional biography is extensive, so you'll have to listen in to hear the fun and original way he thinks and operates in the world. Welcome, Caleb.
2: It's great to be here, Bonnie.
1: So I understand that you had something come up in your early childhood that laid the groundwork for why you value teams and teamwork. Will you start us off explaining that?
2: Yeah, I had, I grew up with two psychologists as parents. They were both hippies, my dad especially. It was in Berkeley, California, or is in California. And my dad was a social psychologist in group dynamics. And if you remember going way back to the 60s and 70s, the encounter group movement. I do. And my mom was into child and family psychology. So the combination was very powerful. And in fact, when I was five years old, starting at five, I would sit in on literally adult encounter groups for weeks at a place called Esalen Institute on the coast in California.
1: I am familiar with that institute. That's incredible that at five you were in those rooms.
2: I was in those rooms and for pretty much my whole childhood. And that led to both a crazy, crazy upbringing, but also led to when I went to UC Santa Cruz and UCLA, actually my dissertation at UCLA was bringing a management team offsite for team development and team building, and I was 22. And what's ironic, if you know the Leesburg area, is that that company was Telos.
1: Oh, you're kidding.
2: And it was the founder of Telos. John? No, it was uh, Lynn Conger. Okay. In California, in Secundo. So when I came out here and I saw Telos, I was stunned, you know, 30 years later. but. Lynn Conger had a partner who had just gotten a heart attack and died. He was the charismatic part of the leadership and Lynn was kind of the accountant guy. And so I took their management team offsite. It must've been 1979 or 1980, three times. And that's how I, that was my dissertation for my MBA at UCLA. And from there, I got the job at IBM in management development probably the youngest person ever at 23 years old. So wow. that, that was the upbringing that has led to everything else.
1: Gives me new respect for your ability to string sentences together. I can't even imagine being in that environment so young. And since that is a lot more to that story, we'll have to have you back on to talk about of that. But you weren't always in the nonprofit world, as you've just explained. From your bio, I know that under your leadership, the Jason Project was recognized as one of the most advanced science education programs in the marketplace, and it was a model for STEM-based initiatives, you know, which emphasize science, technology, engineering, and math for our listeners. These efforts were formally recognized through receipt of 15 national awards during your six-year stewardship. What's the Jason Project?
2: I think it's one of the most dynamic programs that exists in science. It's unfortunate it's kind of waned uh, most recently, but the key problem with with kids in the United States and science is boredom. It's not taught in an exciting way. And so I wrote on a theory I started to develop called the October Sky Phenomenon. And it goes back to Warner Von Braun with Sputnik and that the entire movement of that era of how the uh, Sputnik scared the country and produced more engineers than ever. And so I boiled it down to what kids need are great explorers and great events to motivate them and excite them. So then I, I went out to find with NASA and NOAA and Department of Energy and all of these agencies of discovery, charismatic leaders who are dealing with very important topics in science. And I call those events. So it was great explorers and great events. And it was using all the technologies of, which didn't exist like they do now, the equivalent of Zoom, but it was a very expensive process then, and gaming technology. And having the kids selecting kids from all over the world to be the mentors for other kids and part of the games and part of the videos of how you learn real science. So they were, they were games, but it was based on real science, not made up science. And to have all of that come together and watch the kids, you know, whether it was even looking, we had a geologist, I remember, and he was explaining rocks and I was thinking, God, this would have been so boring for kids. And he just brought it to life. And so that's how careers are made.
1: Sure. We call those people translators, right?
2: Yeah. So I was able to sit down with, with so many incredible people from every background and just talk to them for three or four hours as I got to know them. And the way their careers evolved, were, were, it was such a diverse and unexpected way, you know, it was by meeting somebody sometime in their childhood, and it changed their life. The Great Explore Great event.
1: So is it safe to say that the Jason Project is something people have built on since then, and it lives in a different form today?
2: It actually, it's more or less, it still lives today, but it doesn't have the funding and the capacity that it used to have. And it does take quite a bit of money and interest to fund it. Because it's you know it's not just creating a textbook, it's kind of a living experience. I'm saddened by that. I wish it could come back to its original form because I know it had an impact on a lot of kids.
1: Maybe this will generate some interest. You never know. Never know. Even before that, you foresaw the seismic shift from textbook-based to digital learning, and you refocused MCI's corporate giving program, creating something called Marco Polo, internet content for the classroom. Following the launch of Marco Polo by President Bill Clinton, superintendents across the country signed on as Marco Polo partners. The program also earned national awards and recognition. Tell us a little bit more about that.
2: Yeah, that was a very exciting time. So that was when there was a lot of stuff on the internet, but it wasn't educationally rigorous. It didn't map to standards, which is is the key to get it in the classroom. And this goes back to my childhood and the understanding of how important it is to bring in partnerships and relationships to make anything happen. So I set out to partner with absolutely credible organizations in their fields, like the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics, which is the premier math organization, the National Endowment for the Humanities for Humanities, National Geographic for Geography, and so on. So there were about seven partners, the Kennedy Center for the Arts, and brought all of these organizations together and using the MCI Foundation funded content development with technology, and again, trying to make it exciting, but it was, the, it was prior to Jason, so it was a little less exciting and more trying to figure out, how do you put education online such that it can be core to the classroom? And that's what we did, and that really took off. And the president at the time was Clinton. He took a personal interest. He actually launched it. I got to be with him for a day doing that. It's a very exciting time. And it it literally went to all 50 states.
1: Very neat. Very neat. Well, I bet you agree that the things that build us in our experiences can help give us give more to the future for having had those experiences. You did have prior philanthropic experience as one of the youngest corporate managers named at IBM. You led the corporation's global philanthropic program. Your ability to formulate and articulate a compelling vision then led to IBM's first philanthropic partnership with Toyota Motors. How does that and all that you've been involved with prior to this help you in your CEO role at Oatlands today?
2: Well, uh, that's another uh, good and very different case. It's about listening to people and building real relationships. That's what everything is about to me. In When I was traveling throughout Asia, it was about half the time. And it turns out I don't like fish. <laughs> and, and that's like 98% of what, you know, when you go to high-end dinners there, they are really high-end and exotic. So... To build a rapport with anybody there, I had to somehow address the issue that even though there are going to be 10 courses, I'm probably not going to eat any of them. You know, I'm going to run to my room and get some cheese out of the refrigerator <laughs> after that. And so what happens is, is you have to immediately establish a relationship based on a different level than the more superficial the food, how well you can bow and all of that. And it actually worked to build very strong relations. And that's how I, I, I built a really strong relation with Mrs. Toyota. And Toyota was IBM Japan's largest customer and you know one of the largest companies in the world. So it worked out well. But the other big lesson there was, how did I get to Mrs. Toyota? Well, there was a woman in IBM Japan which was very unusual for women to be working then, who everybody ignored. And finally, when I was there, I I said, well, it seems like you have a story to tell. And she was into volunteerism, which was thought to be unheard of in Asia, but it turns out it wasn't. And so I I started listening to her and she said, well, we wanna have a volunteerism conference in Japan, and I need this amount of money, and I think we can get a lot of people and all of that very humbly. Well, it turned out it was Mrs. Toyota who really wanted it. And she couldn't convince her husband to do it until IBM contributed. And then it was like 400 royalty from throughout Asia, five translated languages. And I think we gave him $25,000. So it wasn't the money, it was the, and it kicked off volunteerism in a huge way in Asia. And that was kind of a big stream that I I kept with during that period of time.
1: How would you tie that to your work at Oatlands today? Because something I heard very clearly in there is something we see in our own work. You not only talked to the woman in the room who wasn't billed as the star attraction, you listened to her and followed up with conversations. And as silly as it might sound, in our work, we see all the time where the woman is routinely ignored, and therefore we don't we don't get her message or her help or her spirit in the world. But even worse than that, on the divorce side of things, we tell her she has enough, and we don't know if she's going to be the Miss she, next Miss Sheila Johnson or the next person, uh, Miss Miss uh, Bezos, who will give back to the world in phenomenal ways. So, how does it tie into Oatlands?
2: Because you never know where the great ideas are going to come from. And if you don't invest the time to talk to people on a real level, you'll never find out. And more than that, we're dealing with a very sensitive issue at Oatlands, which is the uh, enslavement, which is not only important to know for our history, but it's important to know to inform how we're going to operate in the future as a country. And, you know, there are so many problems occurring in the country that it's it couldn't be more relevant. And understanding the sensitivity that goes with that, you know, like the sensitivity in not eating fish in Asia. It's not a minor thing. And and the, we're dealing with issues where people have at Olin's, We're dealing with with issues that are so sensitive that you have to approach them knowing that and that each individual comes at the diversity, equity, and equality issues and the enslavement issues from a very different perspective. And it's it behooves me and those people I work with on the board to really take those things seriously and understand them as we figure out what our strategy should be in dealing with this issue.
1: So I, let's, let's spend a minute on that, because I think that As a a new board member myself, one of the reasons I was so interested in what Oatlands is doing, and for the listeners who don't know, Oatlands is this gorgeous, which we'll go into a little bit more detail about the physical assets of Oatlands, but it's so much more than an old plantation house. There are so many more things to talk about there, but you almost can't get to that conversation. There's no reason to advance the conversation until we address the history. And that's what Oatlands is doing that is, feels so unusual compared to other nonprofit work I've been involved with locally. Take a minute and tell us about what you've done so far to bring the full, that what we talked about in the intro, that 360 degree view of Oatlands history, because it is what it is.
2: It is what it is. And Oatlands is, I think, unique in, in this uh, space because we've been spending 10 years building this program, starting from trying to understand who were the enslaved, and that takes archives and research and piecing together like a Sherlock Holmes movie. Who was here? Who were those families? And then what's evolved since then is an interest of the people who are involved with us from African Americans who are saying, who were my ancestors and my family members who lived at Oatlands and were enslaved at Oatlands. And that's an with the lack of records, and that's an extremely important part of Oatlands is the enslaved and the building of Oatlands was because of the enslaved. And then you have the family who were the enslavers who were the Carters, who for historically, in terms of the stories told at Oatlands, that was mainly the focus, Mm
0: -hmm. Their,
2: their family and their plight and how they did that. And we have this marvelous committee at Oatlands that's made up of both the descendants of the enslaved and descendants of the Carters. And through that, we're having some magnificent discussions and that's where it goes back to my five-year-old experience that it takes three or four meetings to build the trust to have those meetings so that when you, when you say something that's wrong to somebody, they know you as a person and they accept that you've said that. It's very much like the Japan experience with the fish. They know who you are and they accept it.
1: Yes, and you still work together and you're still building on that. I think another thing that's happening at Oatlands in this same part of the story is that Oatlands has spent a lot of resources, both time and money, on the genealogy side with the records that we do have. Those records are being produced in book form and some other forms. So tell us a little bit about the commitment beyond the, yep, this is what happened, you, there's, we, it's ongoing and it continues to be deep and some pieces have moved so we may never, because if you know Loudoun County, you know land is always in play. We don't have the same amount we started with as a as a plantation, but talk a little bit too about the, the detail in what we're learning and what we hope to continue to learn it going forward.
2: Okay, sure. So one of the, one of the, uh, the most important things we've done recently is we published uh, Elizabeth Carter's diary. She was the wife of the George Carter, who was the person who enslaved people. And in that is now giving access to everybody who wants it a history that that spanned about fifteen years from just before the Civil War on to get a sense of all that happened in that era. And this is the grist for scholars. Uh, We have hundreds of books that go back 300 years that will help us understand that process. I, I think it, and even myself coming into this and not being an expert on all of it, I didn't realize how much it takes to sit down and read everything and understand it and piece it all together. Those archives are irreplaceable And we're going through one by one, everything from the Carters all the way to Franklin Roosevelt and other letters that that come up. So there's a long history here that we're looking into. Uh, We also had a really neat uh, kind of recognition for what we've been doing. Michigan State has a national program on building the enslavement database, which we've been doing, as I mentioned, for a decade. And they actually did a search of organizations like ours and found that we stood apart and wanted to partner with us. And um, they have, uh, I believe it's a $3 million grant from the Mellon Foundation to do this project. And they've also given us some money to help advance the program. We're hoping to make this not just a local program and effort, but national as well.
1: You know, one of the things that I think is so interesting, I'm married to someone who studies history, and I always joke, but it's not very funny, really, how how ignorant I am of of much of history. But I love learning as an adult. And one of the things that I think is so interesting about the stories of the families, both enslaved and the Carters at Oatlands, is the fact that these are ordinary people's stories in terms of, in our area, we have a lot of history of famous people who were politically connected or, or quite wealthy. And while the Carters were wealthy in different periods, I think it reflects normal everyday life, which is really interesting to learn about and to share is those simple stories of what transpired on a real plantation between these two very different populations.
2: Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And one of the things I love about Loudoun County, which is so different than where I grew up in California, Uh, You know, in California, you you don't see Civil War sites when you go to work, and here you do. And the other thing that's very particular about this area is that families themselves broke apart on both sides of the issue of the Civil War, and it continues today. Mm -hmm. So it's a very interesting place because it is right on the border of that, and you see that every day. And so I think the highest level we're going to move to from the last 10 years of work is to have the credibility with these partners and the board and this community and how it happens to be set up and mixed and divided is to be essentially almost like an institute where you can come in a safe environment and talk about these very sensitive issues and figure out what does the past mean to me and where do I take this so this country can move forward together.
1: I love that and I do feel like that's the key. It's messy, we know it's messy, we're doing it anyway. So in your tenure at Oatlands Historic House and Gardens, you're developing and implementing strategies to give visitors world-class experiences in things like conservation, history, research, education. The property spans about 400 acres today. It's got 20 historic structures, a four and a half acre English garden and eight miles of walking and equestrian trails in tandem with maintaining and preserving and improving all of these resources or assets. What do you see in Oatlands that made you want to be a part of its future success? Because someone could come in and go, whoa, totally overwhelming. No, thank you.
2: Well, I still did come in saying it's overwhelming. <laughs> but I, I happen to like those kinds of challenges. And I really, the psychological part was extremely important to me. John Meacham wrote a book on the country in this time period that was very meaningful to me about the history of the country and how it's dealt with racism and how it's dealt with this uh, issues of white supremacy. And I felt like Oatlands was kind of the heartbeat of that, or could be, if it were handled correctly. And so that was a big move, a big reason for me to come here. The other thing, which is almost completely separate, and I have trouble combining the two, is that this land is absolutely gorgeous. And it has its own attraction. For those who can see it that way, you know, memories are made, weddings happen, uh, reunions happen, overnight stays happen. So it's a, a very contrasting type of land where you have the serious issues of enslavement and you have people who come here to celebrate and have fun and enjoy the property.
1: And I'm hoping, and I I think most people hope, that those things aren't incompatible on the long term. Because in order to preserve the stories and the land, all of these things would operate at the same time. And I know that one of your goals is to make the property financially self-sustaining. And a lot of people would not understand how difficult that can be. Um, What are your challenges that way? And how will you overcome them if they can be overcome. Lots of room for creative thinking
2: on this one. Yes, lots of room for creative thinking. Well, I think uh, philanthropy has changed over the years, and the way this organization was funded was uh, by large sums of money from people who were more in the, I would say, southern thinking and uh, plantation thinking. And now those people have are are no longer giving that kind of money and they in some cases they don't they're not alive anymore um and that's not funny but that's the reality of it and so the question is what's the market who is interested in an oatlands and its important history and all of the events that you can have and i think that's going to be the key to the new philanthropy and the new donations which Tend to be, um, and it's an experience I had at MCI. I reported to the chairman, and he and the chairman of a you know thirty billion dollar company has a lot of handlers. Mm-hmm. And I, it was six months before I got five minutes with him, even though I reported to him. And what I what I realized is that you know. And then once this Marco Polo program we talked about happened, I could get two hours with him because he loved it. And what I'm finding with uh, what we need to find and it's the same with the board members at Oatlands, it would be hard to get two minutes with them, but then you get a topic that they like, and all of a sudden we're on a call for an hour and a half and it goes to two hours. And I think when we look at donors that we're looking for and the new wave of philanthropy, it's people who want to be involved with something and get excited about it as opposed to cut you a check And they'll see you next year to cut a check.
1: Well, and I, I was going to have this question a little later in our chat, but I'll throw it in now because I will say in my short tenure, I'm having more fun with this experience on a board than I've ever had in a nonprofit experience. And I, I attribute that to a couple of things. Vision, which is hard to find. Uh, lots of people crown themselves a visionary, but I feel like the group here and led by you is really, really looking at the messiness of the history, bringing it forward to celebrate a future and i'm very excited by the quality of board members you have i have not experienced that level of quality in the past and uh, just to throw a shout out to one of them in particular lynn kay has done an extraordinary amount of research preparing the board to help understand uh, the context right so there's a whole bunch of people doing a whole bunch of work and she's knitted it together beautifully which has been so helpful so what, So here's my question. If you could describe an ideal board member, what would that look like? And if someone's th- listening to this going, you know, I wanna be part of that, what would you want them to consider?
2: Well, first of all, thank you for all of that about, there's nothing more exciting for me than when I hear that you and other board members are excited because, because of my experiences I take, if you can't get to somebody, it's because you're not doing something right. So that's a, I really appreciate that. In terms of board members, you know, obviously I've been thinking about that a lot. And I think it's in addition to the enslavement issue and the descendants, which is going extremely well, and people who are interested in that, I would love to have more. We have an equivalent thing going with the gardens. We have people who are not only passionate about it, but I think some of the most expert you could absolutely want, uh, right down to what uh, you know, how you take care of a boxwood, and people who speak the original Latin of these plants as opposed to the English. And they're also heavily engaged in this, in this new, what I think is a new type of donation or a new type of philanthropy where somebody isn't in it to tell others they're just giving money, but they want to make a difference, whether it's that or we have these incredible historic trees that need care or they will die, and there's no replacement for it. One thing about oatlands is anything that disappears, you cannot replace it because it's of of that ilk.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a really tough pill to swallow, you know, and should that occur, but what would you tell So we've, you know, Oatlands has been here forever, it seems like, and what would a past visitor to Oatlands be surprised and delighted by if they visited today? So talk about some of the other assets and just the things that you're doing there. It's, I think a past visitor might not even know about some of the things.
2: They wouldn't know about some of the things, for example, we spent, over $300,000 replacing the, the entire infrastructure of water. Something as simple as that. But after a hundred years, the piping just disintegrates. And so we have, actually now we have, I've been told by the Department of Water, one of the most advanced water systems in the state of Virginia. Oh, very cool. They don't even require some of the things we've put into this system but what we've tried to do is go through each structure and try we have something called the carter barn which was where e-commerce occurred in europe and other parts of the world it was an extremely important building that was falling apart and we refurbished that and preserved that and we've moved on to the mansion and the north porch was falling apart and we've redone that and we're doing the windows in the mansion. We've redone the greenhouse, which is the second oldest in the country. And we've redone the carriage house, which is 130 years old. So all of these places, we're trying to make them extremely inviting for events, for people to wanna to come and and just be there, take it all in, talk to their friends, uh, deal with these somewhat bigger issues. And so I think they'll see even right down to the lawn and the grounds and the gardens, we're working on every detail we can to try to make this uh, just, as you said, our goal is world class. And that's what we're trying to make it.
1: And you have a couple of Airbnbs on the property, correct?
2: Yes, we have two 200-year-old historic houses that we've turned into Airbnbs. So you can get the, although they're very modern in some ways, you can get the experience of what it was like. They're beautiful homes and uh, it gives you not only the home but you have 400 acres, you have trails, you're not in a development, you can walk, you can think. You know, the things you wanna get away from are here. So you can break away from the hustle of the day.
1: Well, I think that's so true in standing on the grounds that you re- until you're standing there, you almost can't appreciate how diverse the grounds really are between the topography and the buildings and the trails. If you can't think when you're standing in Oatlands, then that's probably a different problem because... <laughs> incredibly peaceful. Now, I was out there one day when you and this is this is your nature I found out and I I'm ju- I'm delighted by this approach. You agree it takes a village to get things done. Tell us about the day you had folks out to help you with the trees.
2: That was really exciting. We have uh, a guy named Jim Dunnigan owns a tree company called Dunnigan Trees. And he came out and we talked and talked about having not just one company, but multiple companies, because they, it turns out like anything, they all have different expertise and they all have different equipment. And one piece of equipment might cost hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it turns out a tree company can't do everything. So we talked about these, we have 300 plus historic or 300 trees, many of them historic, And how can we start systematically addressing the problems with these trees? And it it kind of stemmed from the fact that there's a very famous oak grove done by uh, George Carter himself, and half the trees died because they were neglected. And so what we wanna do is have, now we have a six-year plan to go through all of the trees and make sure that they're cared for appropriately, and it's interesting because, you, you know, you think about it, uh, trees in a different way after you've met with these five companies. Here are these people who, who you think they just take trees down and limbs down, but no, they're, they're consulting like they're a medical team around a tree that's 250 years old, talking about how you support a branch or whether you do, it's amazing.
1: Well, I totally get it. I mean, I've been a casual tree freak my entire life, which means I love them, but don't can't speak tree language. But I do know that trees talk to each other, and I know they work together. I know that trees do all kinds of things you can't imagine trees doing. And it's um, and part of that is my youngest son um, was on Treehouse Masters as a carpenter for a few years, and he lives in 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 the mountains, and he's around trees all the time, and his work is lumber. And I was telling him about the trees at Oatlands and sending him pictures and he was so pleased. And I think for people who appreciate trees, that's an asset you don't want to lose either. With change around us in every form, we want to protect those trees so that you can sit under them, so you can climb them, so you can use them. It just feels like that's something worth protecting too.
2: Yeah, I mean, I it just comes home every day. Trees are absolutely important. When you start when you know know people like I know now who, like I mentioned, I said jokingly, know the Latin of a tree, Mm -hmm. but when they're like the great explorer I talked about, exactly like that. And you have the great event, which are the trees. And when you get somebody who's charismatic and and can speak to people so they understand it, and they talk about not, oh, we've got a hundred trees, but they take one tree. Tell you about that one tree. It is amazing the amount of information and the depth of uh, understanding people have, and and how important those trees are in in history and where they came from in the world and what was going on in the world where they when they came over and how rare it was to have a tree like that in a boat coming over here so it could be planted. I, all of those stories are just amazing.
1: Yeah, they're a lot of fun. Okay, so now we're going to take it from the trees to technology. It's everywhere today. But how does technology fit into your vision for Oatlands in the future?
2: Another good question. So, right now, we're operating, we do not have broadband, and oh. we, we need broadband. So we don't have the traditional broadband in the ground like a Fios or something. That
1: way, got it. Okay,
2: so we were able to get before a T1 line which doesn't even run our website. So the first dilemma in the technology was, is there anything out there that we can use to get to the real world of technology? And it turns out there was. It's hotspots, but they're more powerful hotspots. So now we're operating only on hotspots. These things you bring around, you've seen them, the audience can't see them, but...
1: Yes, a little square that gets you there.
2: We live or die on these little hotspots. But the advantage to them, which I wanna start, you talk about the future, and we've talked about that in terms of plein air art programs and others, where they're becoming, because of COVID, things have become a hybrid of Zoom or some kind of uh, visual. And then you wanna be out in the grounds looking at things. So you might have an expert on Zoom as you're looking at a tree or you're painting a painting. And what's interesting is that this technology we're using, actually you can take it anywhere on the site. So you could have a Zoom out in the middle of the garden.
1: Oh, nice. With no
2: electricity. So there's some, well, you need electricity for the, the laptop and so on, but we have plugs. But it's it's interesting to see where this is going to go. And I think the tragedy of COVID is going to lead to uh, different lifestyles and different approaches to everything. And so it's it's going to be a hybrid of. Uh, we've had this fast paced technology world, and I've come from technology companies, but not been you know a techie so to speak, but been close enough that I have some idea of it. And now I think what's gonna take hold, it's always been this way, but it might be extreme right now, is the combination of technology and an entirely different way human beings operate because of what they've been through with COVID and what will go back to the way it was and what will be the new norm. And it's figuring that out with technology for a place that's essentially a museum a history and this beautiful land that people now, I think more than before are appreciating the value of land and getting out and doing things.
1: Clearly, yeah, almost a living laboratory when you put all the pieces together because between the genealogy and the um, art and the outside and the uh, celebrations that take place there, I, I think it's almost overwhelming, but in the best way. And I'm, I share your hope that through this time period, we're reimagining how to do all kinds of things. And with Oatlands being such a blank canvas, lots of opportunity there, at least that's the way I think we both see it. So switching gears, you've lived all over. And now, of course, you're here in Loudoun County. What do you like most about living here?
2: Well, it's interesting. Uh, My wife said it, I think, years ago when she came here and had a good feeling about it, because we have lived, you know, in California and New York and other places. Uh, She got this feeling that there are spirits here that were uh, accepting of of us. I'm not really oriented that way, but the feeling of it comes through that uh she she wouldn't want to go back to California as an example, and and neither would I. We it's just it's a little colder than I like in the winter. Not as bad as Connecticut. So <laughs> that's a plus. But um other than that, uh it's just a gorgeous area, very nice people. We've met just in the development we're in we've met friends that we've had for 20 years since we've been here and that is that's maybe an underrated component of where you live that it for some people you know once you get used to having friends all the time uh you forget that there's a lot of areas where that doesn't happen yes and uh so it's something i don't take for granted i i really appreciate how people are there they come out they they want to have a a good life they want to have friends and all of that is really a a neat place makes this you know loudon county a really neat place to be
1: well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, most people know who listen to the podcast. I'm a big fan of Loudoun County myself. I share your wife's feeling about the area. I think that the vibes here are warm and welcoming overall. And I, the land, you know, I feel like I'm living in France or Italy lots of times, depending on where I am in Loudoun County. It's just beautiful. So everyone experiences time differently. I'm forever feeling like my time is short, but knowing that everyone has whatever time they have and not one day more, what story can you share with our listeners about how you, Caleb, know that this is not a dress rehearsal?
2: It's interesting, goes back to my dad when I was young and going through all of these groups and all of, all of this stuff. And I said to him today, I said at one time, you know, are you going to retire? Are you going to just, you know, are you going to end doing this sometime? Because he was one who worked 20 hours a day and he was extremely smart, you know, taught at Harvard and used, uh, just all the tough places and then quit all of that and went out to be a consultant the rest of his life. And I said, so why do you do all of this? Because he worked really hard. And he said, you know, what's the alternative? You just do nothing. He said, and it's more fun to do this. So, you know, it's, I think it comes down to that, that through my life, the most important thing was that I'm enjoying what I'm doing. And fearing about what you don't know is easy to do. And I'm guilty of doing that, but it's a waste of time because you can't change it and you can't do anything about it. So the big thing in the 60s and 70s was a phrase that I will never forget, and that was called the here and now. You stay in the moment and you do the best you can in the moment. And I'm not saying I'm able to do that, certainly to the extent that I'd want to, but that's what it's about. So if you're not enjoying right now, that's what you need to work at. And that's the only thing you can work at.
1: I spend every day relearning. I appreciate that perspective so much, Caleb. I want to thank you for your time, thoughts, insights, and your wisdom. We wish you continued health, happiness, and success. If you'd like to learn more about Caleb and the beautiful experience he's helping to build at Oatlands, reach out to him at Oatlands.org. Thanks, Caleb.
2: Thank you, Bonnie. It's been a real pleasure.
0: This podcast and any related material is provided for general information and entertainment purposes only and do not constitute accounting, legal, tax, investment, or other professional advice. For professional advice in any realm, contact the appropriate professional. We assume no representation or warranty, express or implied, for accuracy or completeness of content. We assume no responsibility for information contained in the podcast and disclaim all liability in respect of such information, but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, or misleading or defamatory statements. Links to external websites are provided solely for your convenience. We accept no responsibility for any linked sites or their contents. Use of this podcast and its content constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.